Today we're going to hear from a Voyager planning to take thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. In the first phase, we'll be making about 1,000 tonnes of biocarbon and about 3,200 tonnes of CO2 removal. Welcome to Voyager's Journeys. I'm David Rowan, and this is the series where we meet some of the extraordinary people in the Voyager's community working on impactful things. Today, we meet Henrietta Moon, originally from Finland, now running a company called Carboculture, which has an ambitious goal. Henrietta plans to take carbon out of the atmosphere for the next thousand years. Welcome, Henrietta, and tell us more. Yeah, so our mission is to do a gigaton of CO2 sequestration and avoidance, which is about a billion tons of carbon dioxide annually. And that's about one fortieth of all human emissions. So it's quite a, let's say, North Star crazy goal for us, but it guides all of our our thinking and our, our processes. What does that mean, sequestering gigatons of CO2? Explain the thesis, but also in practice, how you're going to achieve it. Yeah, so what we do is carbon removal, which is very different to carbon offsetting in the traditional way. And I'll tell you why carbon removal is needed. Most of carbon offsetting to 97% or something like this is just avoiding emissions. So essentially clean energy or better cooking stoves or energy efficiency or protecting land, for example, which are all needed and good, but carbon removal is actually physically bringing down carbon from the atmosphere. And so we have about a trillion ton debt looming above our heads in the atmosphere and something needs to be done about it. So carbon removal and offsetting are are inherently different and we are doing the carbon removal part. So we actually bring down carbon from the atmosphere. And now how do we do that? Well, of course, capturing parts per million of carbon dioxide from air is actually quite difficult. As you can imagine, machines and people are very bad at that. But what we decided to leverage is biology because it is very good at this. So all trees and biomass all around the world capture carbon dioxide and turn it into biomass by solar power. Explain what that means in practice. What is the process that carboculture enables? So we turn forestry waste or nutshells or any kind of wood-like biomass into stable carbon by taking it to a very high temperature for a split second and then not allowing it to burn. So essentially it turns into something like charcoal, but it's a much purer form of carbon. And tell us how you do it. Do you have huge machines? Is this a software-based process? Where's the magic? Not not software this time. We have a patented process that was originally invented in the University of Hawaii Natural Energy Institute. And from that invention, we've distilled and built our technology on top of it. And and it's an ultra-rapid burn process where we actually combust through the material ultra-rapidly. And so we take the material to a very high temperature above 700 Celsius for a very quick time and don't let it burn when it's got there. And so the resulting material is a carbon that's very low in in ash and impurities. And that carbon stays stable for 1,000 years to 1 million years. So it won't re-enter the atmosphere, essentially. What do you need to make the process happen? What do you as a startup need to provide? Everything. <laughs> but but we have our demo facility in California working. 
and now we're looking, we're eyeing a scale up. Of course, for that, we need excellency in team. We've done some really awesome hires recently. We need capital, of course. We need good partners to, to supply us with the biomass, with logistics, with all sorts of different things. We're working with an extremely good engineering company who have scaled up facilities in over uh, 60 different countries all around the world. And so it's, it's, a, it's a large, let's say, operation to, to scale something up like this. And you need to build a physical plant. Yeah, so, so, so basically we need to have this process happen somewhere. And for that, we need a facility. And that facility will then be making two things, the actual carbon itself, but also the carbon removal. So the, the carbon removal credits. And so, of course, we need space and people and uh, a lot of things to come together. And are we talking about a physical factory or some kind of industrial box? What does it look like and what does it actually need inside? Yes, I guess we could like imagine something like a miniature power plant. Like if we would imagine three shipping containers, 20 foot shipping containers side by side, that would be approximately the, the reaction space for our facility. And then you would have logistics and feedstock handling and place to store the material when it's coming in and when it's going out and data sets and automation and, and monitoring systems and, and all sorts of stuff around it. So, so it is a real factory that we're building. And where are you physically going to locate the factory? We're building it near near Helsinki in Finland this year. So it's quite an exciting year for us. Now you're a startup. So how much CO2 do you see yourself removing in the early years? In the first phase, we'll be making about 1,000 tons of biocarbon and about 3,200 tons of CO2 removal. I'm trying to imagine, is that a shipping container? Is that a gigantic warehouse? What do you physically need to build? How would we how would we put it? A thousand tons is about let's say three thousand cubic meter cubic yards. So so imagine a warehouse that would be about a mm, hundred cubic yards times a hundred cubic yards and twice as tall as you. <laughs> I guess something like that. The physical plant you're building in Finland, how big is that going to be? How many square meters? It's not that big for, for what it needs, actually. Its footprint is about 200 square meters. But the area that we require, of course, needs to be okay with industrial industrial activity. We shouldn't have neighbors too close unless they're also industrial partners or players. And, and also they need to be okay with heavy logistics. So building factories requires a lot of acceptance and and understanding from its neighbors. (laughs) So should we think of Carbo Culture as a biochemistry company? Are you really about the science or are you about changing the way we think about carbon? Hmm. It's a good question. I guess I've always thought about us as carbon tech or climate tech because there is a new wave of, of entrepreneurs who have started companies before and and who have come from different domains to climate tech and rise to the challenge. And I think it's absolutely incredible that we have already a lot of people gearing up to do some carbon removal, stop emissions, 
work in in climate action in in actually moving the needle so so I guess I'd I'd like to call us something in that bracket I don't see us as purely biotech but we've done real science and we're working with the laws of physics so I don't know which category we can go into (laughs) Henrietta it's a huge ambition for a startup to say we want to remove gigatons of carbon dioxide and yet you are a startup you're facing the same risks that other startups face raising money recruiting teams most startups don't make it and as well as finding product market fit and acquiring customers you're also going to have to persuade people that your form of carbon sequestration is the right one that they need to incorporate into their industrial processes how do you start persuading them that carboculture's approach is the right one yeah, it's a good, it's a great question. I mean, we've definitely had our share of obstacles, I have to say, but I think there has been a shift in mindset. This autumn, things really started changing, and the price for carbon removals has gone up and really skyrocketed in in comparison to the regulated market and the other sort of offsets. And we're seeing a lot more corporates rising to the challenge and actually understanding that they need to pay a reasonable price for the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. So Swiss Re, Stripe, Microsoft coming, some other corporates as well have really shown that that we need to step up and pay the, the price that it actually costs to remove that ton of carbon, not just a nominal gift to the company which which has no consequences in what they can do or what they can't do so i think there's a a bilateral push to get this market going which which really feels good and of course we've managed to find some partners who are also willing to to support our business to do multi-year contracts and they understand that we need those to actually have the security and and have better planning to convince investors as well. So, so we're very lucky to, to have some, some great partners in that area. And explain the business model. Explain how you're going to make revenue. Yeah, so, so it's uh, fairly straightforward. We sell two things. One is the carbon removal credits. Right now we're registered on a platform called puro.earth. And basically, we just got audited and verified and we've gone through a uh, lifecycle analysis that really makes sure how much carbon do we pack into one ton of manufactured material. So essentially, with each ton of material that we're making, we remove 3.2 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. That's about probably top of the industry number in efficiency that you can have. That's the first thing that we sell is this carbon removal capacity. And the second thing that we sell is the physical biocarbon. And this is another 10x revenue possibility on top of the actual CO2 credits. So we're selling our biocarbon focused on the urban environment. So new construction materials, water treatment, and urban green infrastructure. So I'm in construction. I buy some of your biochar to put in my project. So I can say I'm doing my bit to keep carbon out of the atmosphere for a thousand years. Exactly, but because it's so lightweight and still so strong, it can actually enhance the material properties on on top of just making it more climate friendly. It can actually do some useful things to the material itself. 
explain how you formed the company. You met your co-founders, then you decided we're going to take on a really tough challenge in creating a carbon negative material that we don't yet know that the world wants. So <laughs> through a series of twists and turns, I ended up at the NASA base in California, not on the cool side, which has supercomputers and quantum computing, on the research side, which is like dust balls and desert. But in any case, on that research side, there was a program called Singularity University, which was a super intense program for three months. We were not allowed to leave for more than a few days from the base. And basically, we had to leverage technology to impact a billion people's lives. And I had always been passionate about environment because I had been a scout since I was a child. And growing up in Finland, you're constantly surrounded by nature. And my co-founder, who I met at the program, is a very loud, tall British-American engineer who has been trying to figure out the carbon problem for over a decade. So essentially, he just needed somebody who's going to come and rip those inventions and, and ideas out of his woodshed or lab <laughs> and go and take them to market. And I had started a couple of things before and some of them went well and some of them didn't. So, so I think we were a good match in that sense. And we also share some sort of a good humor level of both being sort of feet on the ground and sort of forest people in some way. <laughs> I wrote a Wired cover story about Singularity University. It's this extraordinary experiment set up by Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil. It's not really a university and it's not really about the singularity, but it's designed to leverage what they call exponential technologies, these emerging technologies that are going to change all sorts of industries. And they did for a while run this summer program where they attracted talent like you from around the world to come and work together on projects and you got taught about these emerging technologies and then thrown together to start a business. What was it like being one of those fortunate people on that summer program? For the first two weeks, I just thought that they're going to find out that I, I totally don't belong there and they're going to kick me out. So, so I was very sheepish for a while, but then I realized that over half of the class actually had this imposter syndrome because my classmates were just so impressive. One of my classmates ran a nonprofit that has a half a million volunteers all over South America called Undecho Parami Pais, a roof on top of my head, and, and had always dedicated his life to work with the poor. And another classmate had designed a security system for Schiphol, and a third classmate was a microRNA researcher. So, so there was a very, very multidisciplinary team and it was actually impossible to benchmark yourself against them which is what you always do in school who's the best and <laughs> who's not but in any case it was a very loving good class and it was very well picked there were people who who came through their organizations who got scholarships who who this and that and very different age group from 23 to 58 so so it was not like a not like a young people's college, so to say, or, or the traditional university experience, but more like people actually came with experience and, and depth in, in their domains. And that was super exciting. And this was the class of 2013. What have some of your other summer program colleagues gone on to build? Oh my gosh, it always makes me think, why are we so slow? One of our, one of our classmates is, is working on a way to cure cancer by using 
some of your body's own systems. And they're working with some top researchers from MIT, et cetera. And it's just incredibly impressive. Hanu, uh, Hanu Rajaniemi, who also studied under Stephen Hawking and is a successful sci-fi author, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. <laughs> but then other friends went on to build actually also something health-related. They were making a quick test for, for cancer. I'm, I'm not sure if they've pivoted now towards COVID. Maybe they have. But in any case, they were building a, a very cheap device for quick testing. And I think they were piloting that all over Latin America as well. So yeah, super interesting projects. Oh my gosh. And, and very impressive people as well. So, so definitely pushed us uh, forward. And I think one of the coolest things is that I was kind of sunk in this startup sauce uh, quite early on in Helsinki and pioneers in Vienna and, and all these communities that I was a part of where we also know each other from David, but Singularity was actually a place where a lot of people were there because they wanted to do something bigger, do something different, not just build a company to, to exit and, and roll in money. So, so it was really kind of like the definitive push in, okay, let's, let's do something that actually matters. It sounds quite formative in your thinking about carboculture. Let's build something with emerging technologies to solve a major problem. Um, yeah, I'd met you the previous year when you were one of the people who set up a new conference in Vienna called Pioneers. I mean, you'd been in tech before you'd helped run an organization teaching girls to code called Rails Girls. Rails Girls, yeah. Talk, talk through your own technology journey, because I know you, you studied economics in Alto, in Finland and in Vienna? Gosh, I went to, to Vienna to study without knowing how to speak German. And I taught myself German in, in about one and a half years to a fluent speaker level, but still I was struggling with some of the, the exams and stuff like that. And, and because university was so difficult for me and I knew that I'm not useless, <laughs> Other things kind of came and took me along. So I interned at the foreign ministry and, and stuff like that. But quickly, my friends got involved in, in entrepreneurship in Aalto University. Some of my old school friends were working for Rovio, which was this new company doing something around birds. And I was like, okay, let's go and see what's, what's up. Angry birds, yes. And I volunteered to to be a part of the Steve Blank team. So we brought the Stanford professor to Helsinki and we treated him like the next Messiah. I mean, we had a week of workshops with university people, startups, ministers, everything possible. And that kind of like, maybe that week, maybe the community, maybe all things put together and my family having some entrepreneurial background, just I just knew that I have to start companies that was like the thing that I wanted to do nobody was asking for permission so so we started doing these weekend workshops for people like us who wanted to learn programming and learn how to do web development and it kind of got out of hand in in Berlin we had so many applications we had to turn a lot of people down all the developers in the city wanted to help us and then when we started doing it in other cities, there were just so many contacts and so many people wanted to do stuff. We started having workshops all over the world. And now there's been about 
I think 300 cities or 400 cities on all continents. So, so it's really kind of gone berserk in that way, but it's all thanks to the community and, and the people that have been volunteering, but it's kind of cool. It's nice. It sounds like you became very effective at building and then leveraging community. Pioneers in Vienna was a community of entrepreneurs. How important do you think it is for a tech founder to have a network, but also the ability to become a valuable part of that network and leverage those connections? I mean, of course, that's one part. What I'd also say is that I kind of got really lucky with timing. The timing of Pioneers was good because we had electric cars before Tesla was really a thing and and all sorts of future technologies that it was kind of like a marginal group of the techies who were interested in that. So it was kind of like uncool, but cool in some ways. And, and now it's quite mainstream. <laughs> People are talking about deep tech all over. And the same thing happened with Rails Girls where it was just exactly the right time to provide programming teaching to to women for free and people came and told us this can't work you have to have a business model you have to have a board you have to have this you have to have that we didn't have any of that and it just it just flew so so i hope that now with carboculture and i can kind of feel it it's kind of like when you're surfing and you're waiting 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 for a good wave and then you kind of feel one build up and then you just start paddling like crazy to actually make it on that it kind of feels exhilarating in that same way today with climate tech so going back to cargo culture it's now approaching i think 5 years since the company started oh gosh almost yes <laughs> What are the hardest parts of building not just a startup but a startup in an emerging field like climate tech? Is it raising the money? Is it recruiting people who believe in the mission? Is it finding customers? Mm. I'd say finding people has not been a challenge. We've been lucky to to actually attract a lot of people because of our mission. People have taken extreme pay cuts to come and work with us and and stuff like that. But I, I'd say definitely the fundraising and also figuring out the product market fit when you're working with essentially two customers. One is nature. You have to do the stuff that you're saying you're doing. We have to be scientifically verified to actually remove carbon. We can't just make that up. And second of all, you have the human customer, somebody who actually has to give you, give you dollars for it. <laughs> and I'd say finding the merging between those two and then on top of that finding the investor who actually has the bandwidth to to sit and listen to you for a while to actually understand what you're doing is is quite a rare combination <laughs> but somehow we've managed and and now i i feel a lot more confident than i did three years ago let's say and tell us how much you've raised so far and how much you think you'll need to raise to get to market yeah, so so we've raised about one and a half million altogether and another few hundreds of thousands in, in grants and stuff like that. And our next stage, we're, we're going to need about seven million capital in total, euros actually. Yeah. And for our type of technologies, if there's entrepreneurs listening who are kind of thinking of hardware, climate tech or something else, I'd say the earlier you can learn about other financing models than VC, the better. I had this aha, life-changing, almost business-changing experience when I realized that 
maybe we don't need VC ever again. Maybe we can actually use debt, project finance, venture loans, all sorts of different combinations of, of having your projects actually external from, from the main company and how to finance those. There's a growing number of projects, funds, infrastructure developers, all sorts of people trying to, trying to get into this space. And of course, when you get to the large enough project size, then you have your traditional HSBCs and Silicon Valley banks and everybody who have pledged hundreds of billions uh, into climate finance. So, so yeah, you just have to get to a big enough project size and then there's a completely different capital market out there. But I wasn't able to see beyond that VC bubble that I was in until, until maybe last year. So, so yeah. Because venture capitalists are often looking for a return in a shorter business cycle. And I guess their interests in returning funds to their investors are not always aligned with those ambitious founders trying to build something big in a new space. Yeah, I mean, if you need a lot of capital front heavy, then you just need to think about what's the cheapest form of capital that you can access. And to a founder, it's definitely not VC. It's it's loan, I mean, even the best government loan. And now interest rates are so low that, that people actually want to put money into, into projects that can yield them some returns. So I think it's just kind of like making sure that how you're going to operate the, the company and where you're going to go with it. Hmm. Also, if you're talking about a 10 million project, it's quite a complicated project. And doing it with somebody who has gone through it a couple of times before might just be a good idea. And finally, I just want to get the context of what you're seeing in climate tech startups more generally. You're in the Voyager's climate tech community, which is people working on ambitious tech-related ways to solve some of our environmental challenges. And there are people there from Australia, from Germany, from Switzerland and North America. As somebody who's very active in this climate tech community, What's exciting you the most about the approaches people are taking to solving some of these tough problems? I am just so excited to see a lot of old friends uh, coming from their previous companies, whether that was climate related or not, and now starting something in climate tech. So, so we have, you know, in our group, we have somebody working on biotech who's, who's a second round founder who I'm extremely excited about seeing what they're going to build. Uh, we have... Eric working on mobility, urban mobility, which is cool. So, so I think the exciting part about climate tech is that, of course, there's the kind of like hard carbon tech, let's say, which is about how do you stop emissions? How do you draw down emissions? How do you get the carbon down? But then there's the broader climate tech aspect, which today touches all levels of society. Can you do something more efficiently? Can you replace polluting materials with bio-based materials? Can you do something around our urban life and make it better? All these kinds of things are, are kind of centered around climate tech. And I think it's really cool that people are doing ambitious projects. They're doing something that they've never done before. They have labs, they have hardware, they have new logistic chains that they never dealt with before. So, so there's a lot of ambition in, in that group and, and in the broader climate tech space, I think, today. Indeed, there's a couple of people in there building nuclear fusion, others working on enzymes to turn plastics into nicer things. It's the scale of the ambition and the fact that these people don't take no for an answer. That's what's exciting to me. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, it's pretty ambitious to aim to take a few gigatons of carbon out of the atmosphere and put them into small bits of biochar. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody who, who knows what gigatons are, they're going to say it's not going to happen or she's crazy or something. But I think we need those crazy targets to, you know, shoot for the moon. Keep shooting, Henrietta. We're okay with some crazy at Voyagers. Thank you very much, Henrietta Moon of Carboculture, for joining us at Voyagers Journeys. I'm David Rowan. To learn more about the Voyagers community, go to voyagers.io. Maybe you'll even join us. Thank you for listening. Thank you.